on Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1. Streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. You're listening to The Jam Price Show, and today my guest is director Carl Hunter, and we're talking about his brand new movie, Sometimes, Always, Never, starring the wonderful Bill Nighy, who I just absolutely adore. Welcome to the show, Carl. It's a pleasure having you here. Well, thank you for the invite, Janet. Uh, I just wish I was actually in California and not freezing cold uh, England with three coats on. Oh, my goodness. Three coats. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, I, I happen to like bad weather, so look <laughs> at those weird people that like rain, and we don't get a lot of it where I live, unfortunately, not as much as I'd like, so I uh, I might yeah. trade with you. <laughs> well, feel free. Um, I'll, I'll, buy you, I'll buy you an umbrella. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. It'll, it'll you're, like you're the one Bill has, and sometimes, always, never. I'll buy you that umbrella. Oh, I love that. That would be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, Let's tell the audience a little bit about this movie because it is like three separate movies and, you know, you have three titles. So I, I loved it. I, yeah. I thought this movie was just really, it's got, again, lots of fun, interesting layers to it, very quirky, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into talking about it in depth. So just for our audience knows a little bit about this film, can you give us a, give the audience a brief synopsis of what this movie is about? Well, I suppose a brief synopsis of Sometimes Always Never would be it's a story of a family that is in a bit of a meltdown, really. Bill Nye, who plays the father of the family, um, has two sons, Sam Riley, who's alive and in the film. Um, but there was an older brother who, many years ago, walked out of the family house after an argument over a game of Scrabble, but never returned. So the film is a bit of a mystery in some ways, in that there's a, a, an older child that went missing years ago, and a family is in meltdown. So the job of the film, really, is to kind of fix the family and repair them. So that's kind of what the film is. When I pitch it and when I describe it, I've noticed I describe it as if it's a slightly miserable film, but it's not miserable at all. It's actually quite it's actually quite funny um, so apologies if I've presented the film with some dour British foggy rainy dreadful awful film it's actually quite a, a sunny um, upbeat and humorous film it is it is you know and it, it is about a difficult topic in a way um, obviously yeah. and it starts off um, with you know a difficult scene um, in the beginning of the film mm. um, and, and you can talk a little bit about that but, um, but, it, but given that it, it, you're exactly right it is. It has lots of humor in it. It's got lots of layers. You know, there's lots of layers to this film, and and, and uh, the relationship between um, Bill Nighy's character Alan and his son uh, Jack, who you know is, is is still alive as they're looking for mm-hmm. the the brother that walked out. But tell yeah. me, what? How did how did this come about? How did the storyline uh, come about? Because you work with you have a friend who the writer you work with you work with um, Frank Cantrell Boyce, and he's the writer. You've worked with him on a number of productions, so you collaborated together. So tell us about how you two created this this story. Line. Well, originally, Frank had written a short story called Triple Word Score, which basically is the synopsis of the film, um, about, I'd say about nine years ago, and I read it, um, and Frank was quite excited by the short story, and I was, and he said, I think there's a feature film in this, shall we develop it? So we started developing it, um, and like with films is, I think the, if you don't make film, there's an assumption that someone writes something, and then the day after, it gets made. Um, 
which is a very naive way of looking at the film. Um, but what actually happens is things take a long time to end up being on a cinema screen. So from the short story to it now being out in America, that took about nine years. Wow. Yeah, wow. I, I, was, I, was, I was six when we started. <laughs> and you've aged a lot after those nine years. Uh, probably looking it's at been... your hair trying to get this... <laughs> <laughs> it's been nine, very, very hard years. I um, yeah, I remember developing the idea in the uh, in the school playground. But, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but nobody, uh, so we had a short story, and I was very taken by the story, and Frank was. Um, so we developed the script, and then the film was always about to get made. About four occasions. Um, in fact, at one point, we had a meeting in London with um, financiers, and and we shook hands, and it was done. It was a done deal. The film was getting made. And then um, I very excitedly got the train back to Liverpool. For those in America that aren't familiar with Liverpool, it's on the northwest coast of Britain, famous for soccer, and of course, four lovable mop tops who... Um, yes. <laughs> He took the USA by storm in 1964. Um, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Um, the Beatles. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a big fan of the Beatles. You trying? Me too. Um, who isn't? Yeah, yeah, big, big fan. So, um, so the story was, um, and the film was about to be made, and we shook hands on it, and it was all set to go, and I went back to Liverpool, very happy, singing Beatles songs on the train on the way home. And then the next morning, when I woke up, uh, Britain had uh, voted for Brexit, mm. which meant that the financiers got very nervous about financing um, a feature film and um, backed out. So there oh. was the film about to get made again, and then Brexit happened, and of course it, um, it all fell through. However, then a few months later, the same financiers came back and said, well, we still like the film. And we'd still like to make it, and then um, and then they started the ball rolling, and uh, the film got made, and and now there are lots of lovely people in America, glued to the television screen and the cinema as we speak. I hope. Yes, <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they Good. are. I, you know, the, the world has changed in the world of well, for everybody in every mm. aspect, but the world of movies in in, uh, in particular. So going to be interesting yeah. as we go forward how things progress and and, uh, and how we all view films because I am and I say this all the time on this show and I'll say it again I am a big mm. believer that movies need to be seen in the movie theater where they were meant to be uh, seen and so I'm hoping that uh, we can get back to a, a somewhat normal uh, movie schedule again and, and see movies but in the meantime it's been wonderful that so many films have gone on video on demand and digital so a big audience yeah. are, are seeing these films and uh, very glad that the academy this year the uh the oscars are including films that were supposed to have uh release dates and because of covid19 we're unable to do that so they're expanding yeah. it and allowing some of these movies so who knows maybe sometimes always never uh might be nominated for something <laughs> because it's a really fun movie i i have to tell you i love um the production design and i really want to get into that mm -hmm. into the color mm -hmm. palette that you chose for this film i mean it's, it's it's like little pieces of artwork you know each scene it was just it, it just blew my mind away that the, the color choices that were uh that were used can you tell us a little bit about 
um, your production designer or your director of photography, whoever, you know, created the, the sets for you. And well, you also come from that background, too, from production design, don't you? Yeah, well, actually, I was going to say that my, my background is I, I trained as a uh, graphic designer. So um, all, well, my qualifications are in design. So I started out um, as a young person um, as a designer. So I'm used to layout and typography and color and composition. Um, in fact, I, I actually designed a lot of record sleeves. That was kind of one of the big parts of my job as a designer. I used to design record sleeves. So design's always been very important to me. And it's also something I'm very comfortable with and kind of, I'm quite obsessed with design. Um, I like to talk mm. about it. Um, and I like to look at design. In fact, funny enough, on my notepad in front of me, in very large letters, it's got complete design for the morning for a project with um, uh, did you, I don't you know a designer called Malcolm Gareth. Malcolm Gareth was a British designer who was famous for doing, for designing sleeves for people like Buzzcocks, who were popular in America, and um, that relatively unknown band, Duran Duran. Um, mm-hmm. So he's a very, very well-known designer, but he's just uh, coaxed me into doing a project with him, uh, a design project. So in big letters on my pad, I made a note to sort out in the morning. So I'll be doing some design work first thing in the morning. So my background is in design, and I love design. So when I was making Sometimes Always and Ever, I was very conscious that I wanted to make a film which had a very, very strong visual statement. Because um, all the films I like, uh, I get compared to Wes Anderson quite a lot, which is very yeah. flattering. Yeah, um, I would, that's, yes. That's exactly what yeah. I thought when I was watching this movie. I thought, this is very similar to Wes Anderson. I, you know, it has that feel, a Wes Anderson, because very, Wes Anderson's are very distinctive movies. The, the, the palette that he uses and the way that he directs, yeah. you know, it, it has his own style. I mean, that's not that every director has their own style, but I felt mm. when I was watching this, it reminded me of Wes Anderson. So I was, it's interesting that, that you say that he's been an, an influence for you because that comes yeah, through. Yeah, no, he was absolutely um, an absolute influence. Uh, but also, I'm very inspired by a lot of kind of non-British directors. So people like uh, Aki Karazmaki, who is a Finnish director, um, who I'm a huge fan of. I love his films. Um, and his films are very, very designed. And there's a Swedish director called Roy Anderson, who, oh, funny enough, another Anderson, um, whose films I also love. And again, they're very, very clearly you know, very well thought, very composed, very designed films. And I like films like that because I like to make a visual statement because I'm quite interested in film as a language and how you can kind of play with language and maybe can distort language as well. So all those things are quite important linguistically and visually to me. Um, but then also kind of a lot of the influence as well is is a, kind of a little bit of a nod to America in a way because of people like Edward Hopper, I love mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. some of the scenes in the film were very very inspired by Edward uh, Hopper Payton's mm-hmm. and also there's a wonderful American photographer called uh, Gregory Crutzen who I don't know if you're familiar with him but he is incredible and and he was a big influence on the way I shot the film and in fact a few days before uh, a few weeks before uh, I shot the film 
I was in pre-production about two months before I was in pre-production and I was in London and I made a visit to the uh, photographer's gallery which is one of my favourite places in London um, mm-hmm. and I took the DOP with me and the uh, set the, the um, production designer and I took them because um, Gregory Crudson had an exhibition which had just opened at the photographer's gallery which was a coincidence I didn't know that he had an exhibition on I saw it by accident so I took the the uh, director of photography and the production designer to the exhibition and I made them stay there for a few hours and we looked at every photograph we discussed every photograph and then at the end of the day we disappeared for actually we went to the pub um, and then <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way just we went to the pub because we were that excited because we'd seen this brilliant exhibition and we discussed his work and then from that moment onwards we we shared the same language the same film language Mm. about the kind of visual look and kind of feel of the film. So that's kind of where this sort of comes from. Aki Kazmaki, Wes Anderson, Roy Anderson, Gregory Crudson, uh, Hopper. So it kind, of, it kind of fits in that world. So it's a world very much which is based in kind of subculture. It's, it's, well, it's, all that work um, has definitely, it shows up on the screen. You know, you definitely do speak. Of, and I can, now that you say, I do say the Edward Hopper uh, feeling yeah. of this movie too. It's, yeah, definitely in there. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Jam Price Show all about movies. And today my guest is director Carl Hunter. And we're talking about his brand new movie, Sometimes Always Never. Starring Bill Nighy. So let's talk about how did you attract Bill Nighy to this? Because as I said in the opening, I love Bill Nighy. I love everything he's in. I just, I just adore him. Uh, so how did you attract him to this project? And he's absolutely perfect. He just does such a wonderful job in this movie. Yeah, Bill Nighy is he's an absolute joy to work with and spend time with. Um, he's a uber, super duper talented man uh, with a big heart and he's incredibly smart and visually literate and just the most amazing actor um, the way we attracted him is a very strange story um, before we went into long before pre-production uh, the producers um, asked me uh, they said on a wish list who would you like to play Alan in, um, in the feature film and I thought well if it's a wish list I'll say, Bill, it's a wish list, so I wish for Bill Nighy. Um, I can be honest and say, at that moment in time, I had no idea that about a year later, or maybe two years later, um, I'd be stood on a set with Bill shooting a film. Um, And the way we attracted them was actually was very simple. Um, We sent him the script, or we sent his agent the script, and Bill read it, loved it, and immediately got back in touch and said, I've read the script, I really like it, but I'd like to meet the filmmakers. So we went and spent the afternoon with him. Um, we chatted about films and about the tone of the film. And he was just, you know, very, very interested. Um, but he did have some concerns, um, which anyone, any actor would have the same concerns, is what is the film I'm going to be in? And you're the director, so what's your vision? Perfectly standard questions. Um, mm-hmm. And I said to Bill, can I just show you something? And in my pocket, I had a collection of Polaroids. And I walk quite regularly because, like you, I live just on the coast, except probably on your coast, you can walk it in shorts and sunblock. Um, <laughs> on my coast, you have to wear three coats, a deer stalker <laughs> and a pair of Wellington boots. It's only a day. <laughs> um, so we both share a coast 
but very different climates. Uh, but anyway, so I walk the coast a lot and I take a lot of photographs. And I had a packet of Polaroids in my pocket and I gave them to Bill like a pack of cards and said, can I show you a collection of Polaroids and photographs I've taken of walks? I do. That'd make more sense, I think. Can I show you them? And he said, oh, please do. And like a pack of cards, he went through the, uh, went through the Polaroids and he was very complimentary. He'd say, oh, that's nice. Well, that's beautiful. Oh, I like that. And he stopped at one. He stopped on one photograph, and he said, "I love this photograph." Um, and I said, "Oh, thanks." And he went, "That's the type of film I want to be in." And I said, "Well, that's the film I'm going to make." And he went, "Okay, then let's make the film." And like, that's how that's how the conversation. And then we talked about Fred Perry's suit clothes um, for the rest of the afternoon. But that's kind of roughly how it worked. And from the, that that moment onwards, Bill developed a really, really wonderful dialogue with me as a director. And he was just very, very part of it. Um, you know, I keep a lot of notebooks, I keep a lot of scrapbooks. I take a phenomenal amount of photographs. So I'm quite visually literate. And when I'm communicating with the people who are making the film, I find it far better to communicate with images more so than words because I'm making a film. And I want to kind of the look of the film to be quite distinctive. But Bill was very supportive. And, you know, I had some, you know, which were hindsight were quite brave and I suppose um, maybe slightly daft ideas. And, and experimental. Um, I'd run them past Bill, but Bill's enthusiasm and his confidence in me would make me go, I will do that. Actually, I'm going to shoot that scene in that way because I haven't talked to Bill about it. He completely understands what I'm trying to do. So he was a, he was a joy to work with. He was so, he was so supportive. I, I really can't thank him enough. He was a joy. But all the cast were... Every single member of the cast was a joy to work with. And equally, they were incredibly supportive. And the more experimental I got with the film, the more the crew and the more the cast wrapped themselves around me. They were, they were up for trying out things which maybe they hadn't tried before. So it was quite a, quite a happy, happy little world to be in. It sounds like it, and what a great, yeah. um, you know, envir- creative environment that you've created. Uh, so people felt um, supported by you, but also trusted you and and what you were trying to do. And I'm sure that having that on the set um, only it, it, it came across on the screen. Having that kind of uh, creativity um, and t- risk taking, because that's what it's all about, isn't it? In life, yeah. you know. Who wants to play it safe? You've got to take risks. If you don't take a risk, you're not really living. I, it, that's my philosophy, anyhow. And so to be able to yeah. create that yeah. environment on the set where people were willing, because that's you know creating that safe space mm-hmm. where people are willing to take those risks, and it comes out. I mean, it comes out on the screen. It really does. It's it's a, it's just, this movie. I just really it's just really a, a wonderful movie. And and I. I, I Danny Boyle um, gave a quote about this film. Do you mind telling us what he had to say about it? I love Danny Boyle, too, and the way he directs. Oh, nice. How, how did you find out about Danny Boyle's quote? Oh. Ah. <laughs> I have my ways. <laughs> I wonder how you know that. I'm quite shocked. Um, um, Danny, Danny loved the film. Um, he's very, very, I mean, he's very, yeah, was, he made some brilliant compliments about the film. Um, I mean, the, the thing I always remember about his quote, I've got it written down to him, but not to hand. Um, he called the film idiosyncratic. He said it's an idiosyncratic film. Um, 
and I love it. Um, but what I did was I had um, when I did the first uh, when you when you cut a film, it's very long, and you keep cutting it till it gets shorter and shorter. And when I got to the right length, um, I kind of wanted to call a fine cut. Um, I sent it to Danny and said, "Would you mind feeding back if you, you know, and just any pointers? I'd, you know, I'd love to hear from you." Um, and he just sent me this wonderful email um, to say how much he loved the film. Um, the fact that it was idiosyncratic, it was very individual. Um, and he said, um, basically, don't change anything, more or less. He was just saying, you know, this is you. This is your film. It's your statement. Um, and he said, I love it. So he was kind of, yeah, it's great. I do know Danny, by the way. Um, but it was kind of, but it was strange to make a film and get him to comment about the film as opposed to something else. We, you know, might be having a drink with him or something. Um, so no, Danny, Danny was just, um, he was great. And also he did, he did say a couple, he mentioned a couple of things. Uh, about the fine cuts, um, which are really helpful. Just little kind of narrative things about maybe shift something a bit more forward or pull it back a bit later and save it. So you made some, you know, useful comments. But I mean, it's like, you know, I, I mean, how privileged and wonderful is that? So you can drop Danny a note and say, would you have a look at my film, please? <laughs> really? <laughs> and it's the perfect description for your film, too. Now, you're a musician yeah, yeah. in addition to everything else that you do. And so this, let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack. And, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I, that was such a, a, again, you know, a wonderful part of this film. And I think it's always very important. And this one really stood out. So talk a little bit about um, the soundtrack and, and who created it and how you collaborated on that. Well, the soundtrack was always going to be massively important to me. Um, I mean, it's important to anyone making a film. But I think for me, maybe it was slightly more important because I have a history of being in a, in a pop band. Um, I've toured America a lot. Um, in fact, we were, my band, or our band rather, was signed to uh, Sire Records. Um, do you know Sire Records? No, I don't. Sire Records is part of Warner Brothers. Okay. And okay. it was the person who's famous for, for running Sire Records is the legendary Seymour Stein, who signed us. Seymour Stein was responsible for Madonna, uh, the Ramones. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Talking Good heads. pedigree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking Heads. Uh, oh, and the list goes on. Um, lovely man, Seymour Stein. Absolutely, absolutely lovely man. Um, so I was quite familiar with America and, and touring America and, and you know, and making pop music. So when it came to making Sometimes I Was Never, why I had a decision early on is that I didn't want to work with a traditional film composer. I wanted to work with a songwriter because the film is classed as, classed as an independent, they call it an indie film. So in Britain, I wanted a, a songwriter, a musician, who to me represented the sort of king of indie. And the king of indie, I would argue, would be Edwin Collins, and Edwin Collins, who the um, your American audience might know Edwin from his early days with a band called Orange Juice. And then later on, he had a massive hit over in America with um, Never Known a Girl Like You Before, which was huge. Um, yeah. Now, I'm always, I've always been a massive fan of Edwin. And again, going back years, I've kind of, I, I knew him. Um, so I wanted, I think there was a kind of the ethos and the heart of the film is very independent. So the music should be from someone who equally is independent. So it's in a way, it's kind of like, sta like rubber stamping the film yes. and qualifying yes. it. 
It's like I'm, we believe in independence. I agree with you, and I'm so sorry our time is up. It's so oh. fascinating. Lovely to talk with you about this film. Thank you so much. Everyone, find this film. It's on VOD and digital platforms, sometimes, always, never. Thank you, Carl. It was a great pleasure having you on the show. Well, thank you for the invite, John. And um, I'm just deeply upset that I can't be in California sitting in, in a bar chatting to you about the film instead of being in rainy, windy old Liverpool uh, dodging the bad weather. Well, we'll have to make sure it happens with your next film. We'll make it happen, for sure. Well, we'll uh, make a next film, which hopefully I will do, uh, talking about it as we speak. Um, then maybe I can come over and, and uh, hang out in, uh, in America for a while, in California. It would be lovely. It would be lovely. Thank you again. Like Thank you, John. You're welcome, Carl. You're welcome. Mm. Like the Jam Price Show on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Jam Price Show. You can listen whenever, wherever on the jampriceshow.com and on the iHeart Podcast Network, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. And thank you all for listening. Have a great day. On Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1, streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio, Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. 